Well, good morning. Amen. Someone's awake. It is a a great joy to get to be with you and to worship with you this morning, to take communion with you. So I send greetings from our church in Minnesota, a sister church to this one in the region of Sovereign Grace Churches, and uh, it was a joy to to do a week together um, with Pastor Greg in Dubai, and and just to be with these brothers is just amazing to hear them sing, to hear the stories. I wish this morning we can just share stories about their passion for the gospel and for evangelism and reaching their culture and how they've risked their neck multiple times and how they're under the pressure of secret police at times. And even after this last training uh, in June this year, when Ferris, the partner, went back, he, he got called away and the secret police wanted to talk to him and ask him, why are you going to Dubai so many times, they have their finger on him, they, they can know his whereabouts, and they questioned him, and he was nervous about that, and so keep these brothers in your prayers as they continue to come out so they can get the training to be more faithful, and just the stories we hear of their sacrifice, and the stories we hear of their boldness, even in the face of danger, is just humbling to know that these men are risking their necks. And sometimes we, we're fearful to even share the gospel with a neighbor. And so it's really uh, a good thing to see their boldness to be spurred on to, to more. We have the same Savior, the same Spirit that fills us. So my name is Joshua Chambers. I'm the Director of Short-Term ministry, Ministries in uh, uh, Training Leaders International. And um, this is one of the projects that we are working on. And this, is, this kind of project is my favorite because... Uh, We're not just doing this as a ministry and taking people along to help us train, but we are partnering with a group of churches here to then shape a group of churches there. And so we then become the facilitators for churches serving other churches, and that is the best way to do it. And so we love this partnership with Sovereign Grace, and we want to see many, many more. So please pray for that and give to that so that people like these guys can get the training they need to be faithful. But I do want to preach this morning. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. And we want to focus on today the God who saves from wrath. The God who saves from wrath. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Today is about you and about who you are and about a people you've created. Father, we want you to get the glory this morning. And we want your people to be fed. Father, I pray that you would use my weakness to grow strength in your people, that to feed your people. Father, you desire to feed your people and sustain them more than anyone because you've died for them. You have created them, and you sustain them, and you uphold all things by the word of your power. So, Father, please keep your promise this morning to sustain your people. Keep, this, keep your promise this morning to feed your sheep. And, Lord, help us as we open the word now to behold and see the glory that's there, to, to see the glory of the God who saves from wrath. Father, give us eyes to see it. 
Give us ears to hear it. Give my lips, protect my lips, Father, that I might be faithful and bold to proclaim it. And let us all be in awe of the God who saves from my wrath. You are our God, and you are great, and you do mighty things, Lord. So help us to see that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever blown it? I mean, just royally messed up. Maybe a situation where you worked so hard to do the right thing, but there's this one little time where you blew it, and that affected everything. Maybe you worked so hard on a project day and night for weeks, and there was just one little thing that you forgot. And that thing made all the difference in the world, and the project didn't happen. It failed. Or maybe it's a relationship. You've been doing your best to love that harsh person at your work. You've been watching your words. You're watching your tone, trying to serve them the best you can. But there's this one time where you just couldn't take it anymore, and you let them have it. Then from that point on, it's just been twice as hard as it was before. And it's affected everything. Sadly, we can think of too many examples like this in our own life. And in 1 Samuel 25 is one of those times in the life of David. So turn to 1 Samuel 25. And in this text, we see that David is about to blow it. If you're familiar with this passage of David and Abigail and his foolish husband, her foolish husband, Nabal, um, you may be familiar with it, but I would ask you this morning to come to this text with fresh eyes. Let's see what this text teaches us about the Lord. Here we see David fail for the first time in the storyline of the book of Samuel, and it won't be the last. It's clear that the man after God's own heart has significant weaknesses. What will be clear to us as the story plays out are the consequences of this. And so we'll see a fool, the husband, Nabal, and we'll see his godly, discerning wife, Abigail, and we'll see a hot-headed king about to do something rash and foolish. But what, must, what might surprise you is what this text shows us about God. At the center of this episode in David's life is God himself and what he is doing in the world even today. And that's where we're going. How does this text play out in the stream of God's plan for the world even today? So let's figure out where we are in the storyline of the Bible. Samuel fits into this greater storyline of the Bible from beginning to end where God is doing something and going places. He's made promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he will give him an offspring and a land and that the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And he's brought them out of Egypt in the exodus from slavery and, and into servitude and, and under the Pharaoh, and he's given them Moses as a leader to institute a law so that they might know how to live before him as his people in his kingdom. And he raised up Joshua to take them into the promised land. And he's beginning to fulfill his promises. He increases the people so that they're so great in the book of Exodus. And then he gives them the land that he's promised. They just have to keep following him so that the people that, that would hinder them from following him, would, the pagans would be able to be conquered and cast out of the land. And he gave them judges 
to save from his enemies when the times were tough and when God's people were under oppression. And the biggest problem in the book of Judges was that they had no king. Over and over it says that. There was no king, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so that sets the stage for then the book of Samuel, where God brings Samuel, this last great savior of the book, from the book of Judges, like the last judge and the first and another prophet and a priest, really, to establish the kingdom of God. And so Saul becomes the first king, but it's not God's king. David's God's king, a man after his own heart. And then through Samuel, he then anoints David to be the true and right king that he has chosen. And we see Saul continue to be going into a downward spiral. And so the chapter 25 is then surrounded also by two episodes in the life of David, where Saul, because the spirit has been lifted from him and given to David, is now erratic and irrational and grasping at the kingdom and trying to keep what's falling away from from falling through his fingertips. And he's after David to kill him. And in chapter 24, David has this opportunity where Saul comes into the cave he and his men are hiding in to use it as a toilet. And everyone sees this is it. This is clearly the providence of God, David. Your enemy has come right into your hand. We know you're the true king. Just kill him. Slit his throat. You got him. And David says, I can't do that. I cannot put my hand to God's anointed. We see David's righteous character, his noble character. Even when it seems so obvious that God has ordained a moment for David to strike, he says no. And then after our text in chapter 26, we see the same thing again. Saul a sleep falls over them that comes from the Lord, and they go into the camp, David and his mighty warrior, Abishai, and he's right there, and he says, look, there's Saul. There's a spear. Just take the spear and just get him. This is it. God is putting him in your hand. It's so obvious that this is God's work. David, just do it. And once again, David says, no, I cannot put my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so in both of these texts, in chapter 24 and chapter 26, we see David's righteous character, even when it looked like it was from the Lord to not do what he knew was wrong, to kill the Lord's anointed king. However, that makes what happens in chapter 25 so striking in its contrast. We'll see David, who should have been so noble, fail in this text. And we'll see what that teaches us about our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to see four things in this text today. Four things. It's a long text. We're going to read through it in chunks and make comments. But the four main things I want you to see are this. They're all about God. The God who tests his king. The God who restrains his king. The God who avenges his king. And the God who sends a better king. And that's where the hope is in this text. First, the God who tests his king. Look at verse 1 of Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So Samuel has now died. And this is important to set the stage for what happens next. Samuel has been a restraining influence 
in the kingdom of God. When Saul was erratic, Samuel was there to cool him down. He was a go-between, between the king and God himself, and, and kept things together. Now that he's gone, Saul is breathing threats against David, and he must even more be on edge. That's why the author begins the story with this important detail. It seems like it doesn't fit, but it makes a difference to David's state of mind. With Samuel gone, will he trust the Lord? Will David trust the Lord? Let's read verses 2 through 8. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and three and a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel. Go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So you see his humility, offering peace to his house. So David and his men are hiding in the wilderness because they're still scared of Saul, and they have limited resources and food. And this fact prevents them from celebrating one of the feasts that's so important to the life of Israel. You can't celebrate the feast when you live in the desert and you have no food. And so David requests some meager rations from a local rich guy who can certainly spare something. It would only be common decency for him to be hospitable to a fellow Jew who is in need, especially during a celebration. And if that's not good enough, David and his men have protected his shepherds and their property. How much more reason does Nabal have then to help David and to share and give? And does he not know that he's the anointed king? Surely he does. Let's keep reading, verses 9 through 12. We see what happens. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't, not, I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told all of this to David. And so Nabal insults David. What makes David so special, he says? Who is he that he has any right over me or my property? Who does he think he is anyway? This is kind of the response of Nabal. Nabal certainly knows that David is mighty, has been fighting many battles. We see that from chapter 18. Even the women were making songs and there was, everyone was singing it. 
Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul was angry about that. But everyone knew that. Everyone knew how mighty David was. And later, Abigail makes it very clear that they certainly knew that David was the true anointed king. We find that in chapter 16. Perhaps Nabal didn't want to become an enemy of King Saul for harboring David. Maybe. Everyone must have known that Saul was hunting him. That was no mystery. He gets reports in chapter 24, verse 1, and chapter 26, verse 1, of the local people sharing with David's whereabouts. Hey, Saul, he's over here. Go get him. So maybe if Nabal, maybe Nabal was thinking, if I start helping David, Saul might come get me. Perhaps the average Israelite was not so eager to serve David because they're scared of Saul. Remember what Saul did in chapter 20 where he killed the priest of Nob because they gave David bread and food to eat when they were on the run from him. He just slaughtered all the priests. But let's not forget, Nabal didn't get the nickname fool for nothing. His name means fool. And our text is going to tell us more about that. Based upon what we know about Nabal, fool, we are to assume that his, this insult flies in the face of good reason. Nabal wasn't thinking about these things. He was just being a fool. That's why he got the nickname fool. It was the epitome of foolishness because our text says he's a harsh and badly behaved man. And look at his stinginess. I mean, after all, David has protected his property. Look at his stinginess. The text emphasizes it in verse 11. Shall I give my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? And give it to these nobodies from nowhere? That's what he says. So here we have David, who's simply acting like the true king. He's protecting his people. Even when he's on the run from Saul, he's been protecting the welfare of the people of Israel, like Nabal. And he asks for something simple in return when he's in need and he gets insults and injury. So this is the test. This is the God who tests his king. What's David going to do? Will he respond like he did in chapter 24 with Saul? Will he be noble and righteous in his dealings with Nabal? Or will he take matters into his own hand? What would any king do if they were insulted like this? What would you do if someone treated you this way? Well, let's read. Is David going to trust the Lord to vindicate him or take matters into his own hand. Read verse 13 to 22. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. The word sword is emphasized three times in that short verse. But one of the young men said, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed against them. Yet the men who were very, these men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, Abigail, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. 
And he is such a worthless man that one cannot even speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of, raisin, clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Fool. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said earlier, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. This is the first mention of God in our text in verse 22. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now there's a textual note if your Bible has that. And it's one reading could possibly be, God do so to me, God do so to David, if by morning I don't kill everyone. So he's calling down curses upon himself to say that if I don't kill all these guys, God kill me. That's how committed he was. That's how driven he was in his wrath and anger. And so he and 400 men strap on their swords and they rush headlong into battle. This is an act of vengeance. Where he has showed such righteous restraint with Saul, he is now rash and full of wrath. But Abigail springs into action. The ball, he must be off doing something foolish. Abigail gets to work, and she intercedes and gathers all the supplies and gets going quickly to head off David before he can come and do something that he will regret. David essentially says, God, kill me if I don't leave everyone, if I leave anyone alive in Nabal's house. How striking it is that he feels so righteous about his anger. He feels that he has every right to be indignant and that the fitting punishment is death for everyone. He's kind of acting like Nabal. And look at his reason. He has returned to me evil when I did him good. But Saul has time and time again shown him evil for the good that he returned, and yet David showed restraint. Yet in this situation, he's about to blow it big time. The kingdom, he's the king of God's kingdom, and God is doing something and establishing something, and David is now putting all of that in jeopardy by this one act of foolishness and rash anger. So we see the God who tests his king. Now let's see the God who restrains his king, verses 23 to 25. This is the climax of the story. We know Abigail heads him off, and this is what happens when she meets David. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Fool is his name, and folly is with him. 
But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David responds. He says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in a ball so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. We see Abigail's righteous character, her wisdom, her discretion. We see her approach to David. It's be, this is the climax of the story. It's because of her boldness and wisdom that David is kept from grave sin. Abigail's the righteous one. She humbles herself before the king. She takes all the blame, even though it's Nabal who did the insulting. And she generously offers a feast for David and his company. But she doesn't take the credit for this. She ascribes all of this work to God himself. And so he is the God who restrains his people. Abigail was the instrument, but God himself was doing the restraining of the king. She says, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, verse 26. Blood guilt because he was about to spill the blood of Nabal and every male in his house without just cause, like it says in verse 31. But the king was also supposed to trust the Lord to fight, to conquer his enemies, to deal with his enemies and not take matters into his own hand. It would be God's king. God was the true king of Israel, and he was to trust himself to him to fight the enemies and to not rescue and uphold his name by his own power. So what is she saying about God? That he makes promises to David. Notice the promises. One of the ways she restrains him is not just her presence and her humility and willingness to take the guilt, but by giving promises. Reminding him of God's promises. 
that he has made to David. Here it is important to note that God brings salvation again through a woman. Why? The kingdom was at stake. What would have happened to the kingdom of God and the promises of God had David carried out his plan of vengeance? And so Abigail restrains him, God restrains him through Abigail with the promises that he has told to David. Here's, the first, here's one of the promises, verse, six, um, verse 26. You shall surely be king, she says. Sorry, wrong verse there. She said, you shall surely be the king, and you shall surely have a sure house. So she knew he was the anointed king back in chapter 26 of our text, and she says, surely you will be the king. A reminder to David that what God has said and done in anointing him is uh, going to happen. So you should be restrained because the kingdom is at stake. And secondly, she mentions that David, God will surely build a sure house for David. And this is before God has even given David that promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David wants to build God a house because he sees how wonderful his house and he looks out the window and sees God's dwelling in a tent. I want to build a house for God. He should have a nice house like me. Better than me, hopefully. God says, you won't build my house, your son will. But let me tell you this, I'll build you a house, which means a line of kings that will lead to the Messiah. I will make you a sure house, is the promise of 2 Samuel 7. But here, Abigail is foreshadowing what hasn't even come to be yet. David hasn't even heard this promise. And now in the lips of Abigail, he gets a foreshadowing of a special covenant promise that God is about to give him later. So what's the problem? David failed the test. So God comes to restrain his king. The kingdom was at stake because of his unrighteous choice. Had Abigail not stepped in, the road to kingship would have been paved in blood. God was kind to restrain David. So we see the God who tests his king, the God who restrains his king, and now the God quickly, who avenges his king, verses 36 to 44. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast. Okay, I suppose that's normal. Okay, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. He was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. I assume he had a stroke of some kind. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the, at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to be his wife. And she rose, bowed with her face to the ground, and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose, mounted a donkey, 
and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his first wife, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was at Galim. So God avenges his king. Nabal, he's here celebrating like a king. And after having snubbed the true king, and his death is just. It is a sign of God's love and protection of his chosen king. So God tests his king. He fails the test. God restrains his king and avenges his king. And we also see that God, let us see the God who sends a better king. So this is a text of failure on David's part. Why did God give us this story when David almost blew it? Why is it important for us? Is it intended intended just to be a moral lesson? Be like Abigail and God will bless you. Or don't be a fool like Nabal. It might lead to death. Or don't make rash decisions like David, though he's the hero, the good guy of the book of Samuel. We often do this with stories in the Old Testament, don't we? We take the actions of the hero as a model for how we should live. But that is not the main point. If we read the book of Samuel and exhort ourselves to be like David, we should ask, which David? The one who killed Goliath? That sounds good. Or the one who forced himself on Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah? Which David should we be like? The one who conquered Israel's enemies and brought rest to the promised land? Or the one who had multiple wives, as we see here, and was such a bad father, his family was constantly full of strife and loss? Anybody want to be like that, David? There may be helpful lessons to learn in these things, but that's not the main point. 1 Samuel 25 is in a stream of God's purposes that leads to Jesus Christ, the greater David. This story is connected to other stories that describe how God works with his people to bring about his promises. Promises that began in the beginning. Genesis 3.15 promised a seed of the woman who would crush the head of that nasty serpent. And in Genesis 12, that promise was sharpened when God promised to Abraham offspring and land and that the nations would be blessed in him. So we see God's desire to bless the nations, that they would know him. We aren't to immediately find ourselves in this story until we first connect it to this stream of redemption and what God is doing in the world. And in this stream, David's counterpart is not us, but the Messiah, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. So there are a few key contrasts between what we see of David here and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we should highlight. First of all, Jesus fulfills the promises to David. Jesus fulfills the promises to David. God did build David a sure house, and it failed over and over again. But the seed of David finally springs forth into Jesus Christ, who triumphs where the mere human kings have failed. Beloved, when we see our own failures and weaknesses, let us remember our perfect Savior, 
who is our righteousness. He has perfectly obeyed so that we can enjoy peace with God and Him. Not only does Jesus fulfill the promises to David, but he, this text helps us anticipate a better king. He is better than David. Jesus is much better than David. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priests, the sacrifices, the temple. Jesus is better. The man after God's own heart, David, didn't always follow God's heart. This story reminds us of the need for a better king who, would, who could be trusted with God's kingdom, in whom there is no sin, in whom there is no rash anger. Evil men often oppose our Savior. Remember his ways with the Pharisees? He always restrained himself from, a, from vengeance. Instead, he confounded them with patience and wisdom. Go read Mark chapter 12, one of my favorite texts, where they're just after him, and Jesus has wise statement after wise statement and patiently opposes them at every turn. But not only does this text help us anticipate a better king, we see that Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus is mighty to save. Unlike David, Jesus is able to save by his own hand. He alone can work salvation for his people and establish his kingdom. But his salvation is not a self-preserving salvation, but a salvation of self-sacrifice. He's better than David, and he is mighty to save. In Christ, we worship today the God who saves from wrath. He saved Abigail and Nabal's house from the wrath of David, and God now saves his people from his just and righteous wrath through the provision of a better Savior and a Son, Jesus. So what does this mean for the world? What does this text mean for the world? What does it mean for missions? Is there missions in this text? Absolutely. Because it's connected to a stream that's going somewhere, that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, that carries forth, forth the promises of God to bless the nations in Abraham that would then be transferred to David, that would then be transferred to Jesus as the greater David in the line of the kings that came. This text is important for us today. It teaches us about God's unstoppable kingdom. Even David's sin could not stop the kingdom. Even the king couldn't stop the kingdom from going forth. He failed the test. God restrained the king. Why? Because God will establish his purposes and make his promises good that he has given to his people. That's what 1 Samuel 25 is all about. That's the promise we have to bank on today. The promise to bless all the nations in Jesus Christ is related to 1 Samuel 25. And when we go out and do mission, and we find ourselves in weakness, we find ourselves in sin, we find ourselves failing, even when we've done our best, it will not stop the kingdom of God from advancing. It will not stop the promises, beloved, from coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. You can have hope today that God will do what He has called you to do and He will keep His promises to His people. He will bless the nations. Will you go and be a part of that blessing? Someone else will, 
even if you were to stand in front of it, even if you were to get on your horse and ride with wrath and make a mistake to, to end the kingdom, God will stop you if necessary to make his promises good. Will you be a part of his mission? Go in faith. Go in that hope knowing that even when you fail, you cannot stop this kingdom from advancing. And even though men be angry and fight against us and kill us, God's kingdom cannot be stopped. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for building an unstoppable kingdom. We thank you that even your king, David, cannot stop your kingdom by his sin. Father, we take hope for that, that though our lives we find failure, we find besetting sins, Lord, we can take hope that your promises will be accomplished and that what you want to use us for will be, and we can trust that, Lord. So please help us to take boldness, to take courage, to, to be on mission for you, whether it be across the street with our neighbors or be across the world to Dubai and other places that need to hear the gospel, where churches need to be strengthened, where men need to be trained who lead the church. Father, help us to be on mission and to take hope from this text where we see David's weakness, that we have a greater David, Jesus Christ, who establishes all your promises and who leads us, Father, as we follow him. Let us be strengthened with power in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.